Hey everyone, this is Rebecca. Chelsea and I have had so much fun making this podcast. We're really grateful to everyone who's listening and engaging in these critical conversations. And we hope you've gotten as much out of this as we have. So we're running a contest for the holidays. For everyone who subscribes and reviews us on iTunes, we'll enter you into a drawing. Two winners will be drawn on Christmas Eve to receive either a 30-minute tarot reading with Rebecca or a 30-minute intuitive guidance with Chelsea. For more details, go to listentotherising.com. We want to know, how can spirituality transform our social movements? And how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Today's episode is the first of two parts. The second will air next week. I do want to give you a content warning. Today's episode includes graphic description of sexual assault, so be warned. Hello and welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. I'm Rebecca Burnt, and I'm a spiritual director and activist exploring the intersection of spirituality and social change. My co-host Chelsea is in the UK this week, hopefully having a fabulous time, Um, but I have a few special guests that I'll introduce to you in a minute. Today we're going to be talking about the limits of forgiveness, reconciliation, and redemption. The actress and author Amber Tamblin wrote this week about something that's really been on my mind a lot lately, um, especially in the wake of all these revelations about men doing truly terrible things and losing their jobs and losing their positions of power. She wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times where she talked about um, having a conversation with uh, some friends of hers, one of whom was a man, you know, about, I think, Louis C.K. specifically, but about everything that was going on. And this man saying to her, like, well, let me ask you, like, you know, don't you believe in redemption? And she basically says, look, like, we're just now exposing this injustice that's been going on for hundreds of years and thousands of years and that we've had trouble getting traction around. (laughs) And all of a sudden, we're really starting to see things shift, and we're starting to see people held to account. And why are you so quick to want to go to redemption? And then she talks about, you know, she says for Louis C.K., yeah, I believe he can have redemption at some point, but he's really going to have to find a new relationship to power and and a, a new kind of power. And if he wants amends, he's going to have to make them. And, you know, that redemption is going to have to involve atonement. And as a spiritual person who's been spiritual, who's been in some sort of spiritual or religious community my whole life, I hear all the time about forgiveness and compassion, empathy, reconciliation, redemption, all of these things. And um, I think it's something where we want to reach for that. You know, We want to have a pretty story. We want to make everything okay in the end. We don't like sitting with the sort of unresolved uh, the unresolved nature of what happens after people get cast out of power and get cast out of their positions. But I think sometimes the way we ways that we apply these concepts can really do a lot of damage and can perpetuate injustice rather than really heal them. And so today we're going to talk to two guests. The first is my friend 
Deb Helt, who has been on the show before. She's back. Really glad to have her again. Deb is a Los Angeles-based therapist and development consultant. She holds master's degrees in urban planning from UCLA and in clinical psychology from the Phillips Graduate Institute. Her clinical interests include postmodern narrative therapy, relational gestalt, interpersonal neurobiology, and mindfulness. She's interested in exploring the role that therapists can play to support social movements. Welcome, Deb. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And then the other is another good friend of mine, Gabe Stoudemore. Gabe writes about faith and atheism. He holds an MA degree in religion and public life from the University of Leeds and an MA in religious studies from the University of Bristol, both in the UK. His first book, I Guess God Thinks I'm Gross, is due for release in 2019. He lives in Menlo Park, California, and works at Facebook. Welcome, Gabe. Well, thanks. My bio's not nearly as uh, long and decorated as <laughs> No way. They're actually both about amazing. three lines long. So. Okay, cool. <laughs> and you both have more master's degrees than I do, which is zero. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Gabe, so you wrote an article this week that came out in Relevant Magazine. And you know what? Do you remember the title of it? Because I want to say it, Gabe, and I totally forgot to pull it up here. Yeah, the ti- and I, I do want to say that the title is uh, chosen by the editing team at Relevant. I may not necessarily have written it this way, but um, it, the title was, If My Church 2 Story Hadn't Happened, I Might Still Be a Christian, a First-Hand Account of Sexual Abuse in the Church. Yeah, I'm wondering, um, I read it and it was a very powerful story, although I've heard some of that story before from you. Um, and I'm wondering if you can share it with our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny, thinking about the actual times I was sort of abused in a physical way, there were only really two physical incidents and one really just inappropriate incident over a series of three to four years. So it was a long, long period of time where uh, it essentially started with a crush I had on on a girl while I was uh, – at Bible college, I was studying to be a, a minister. I was a pastoral ministries student. And I had this crush on this girl, and I went home with uh, with her on spring break one year and met her family, met her uh, you know, parents and things. And uh, her dad and I really hit it off. He was a pastor of a local church, and um, they were doing pretty well for themselves and took an interest in me right away um, at the time. And, you know, I still do, I suppose, but I had a lot of opinions about organized religion and Christianity and the particular denomination that my school belonged to. And he seemed to resonate with a lot of that. So kind of right away, we were on this sort of ideological plane together, um, which, you know, normally I wouldn't think to have conversations with the father of a girl I liked, you know, if I don't have to. Right. But um, (laughs) uh, we had lots of conversations over a long period of time. I mean, for at least a couple of years, it got to the point where, when they would come into town, they would take me out to dinner as well. When they did family stuff, I would come along. So even after sort of the romantic prospects fade, that faded, I just became friends with this person. Um, I sort of became an adopted member of their family. That's what, you know, um, in the article, I call him Mark. I, I don't mention him by name, mainly to protect his family, who is sort of innocent in all this. Um, so yeah, uh, Mark sort of regarded me as a second son. You know, he had two daughters and a young son at the time. So from there, you know, it really became a sort of father figure, honorary son type relationship. And I I had difficulties with my own father for years. 
you know, he was a fundamentalist Christian farm boy from Missouri. <laughs> he and my mom had divorced. Um, and, you know, here I was, this metro northern city kid. And I can't change the oil on my car today. I'm 32 years old. I don't know how to change the oil. Um, I do. You just go to Jiffy Lube. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so my dad and I never really got along. Um, we get along better today. But um, point is, at the time, I was sort of look, going through this stage of my life where I was looking for some kind of supplemental fathers. Um, so after a while, Mark kind of became that character for me. And after a while, you know, there were things that kind of right away struck me as red flags. I mean, he sort of had this way of speaking that was sort of overly complimentary that kind of made me feel uncomfortable sometimes. But, you know, he would kind of lavish me with gifts and things like that. And uh, you know, I came from a lower middle class home. So number one, I wasn't like used to getting stuff for free or going out to nice dinners, but especially in the Pentecostal iteration of Christianity, it's really easy to explain this kind of stuff away that like you're just wounded or this is what restoration looks like or, you know, so there were a lot of reasons so-called that were given to me as to why I was feeling uncomfortable. Right. So after a couple of years, um, it, it was essentially like I had uh, the father I always quote deserved to have, which was, you know, sort of a ridiculous notion. But um, it all kind of culminated into one afternoon. Um, I was finishing up college. I was in this summer internship. It was the last thing I needed to uh, graduate with my bachelor's in pastoral ministries. And I had already accepted a job that Mark had offered me at his church, kind of sight unseen. Here was an opportunity to kind of mitigate my strengths and keep me out of the stuff of ministry that uh, he knew I didn't dig. Um, so he invited me to this preseason. I think it was either preseason or early game at Yankee Stadium. And my internship was at Niagara Falls. So I drove this car that, quote, the family, but it was really him, had bought me um, all the way to Manhattan and uh, to this Yankees game. And at the um, in the hotel suite before the game, he uh, sexually assaulted me. Um for the first time. Um, and at the time it wasn't, I mean, he, I wasn't raped. He didn't drug me or anything like that. He grabbed my genitals in the middle of a wrestling thing. I was wrestling with his little boy. who was at like nine at the time. And he joined in kind of too eager to join in. Uh, it was weird. The whole thing was weird. And he you know, grabbed me. Um, and it kind of, it, it wasn't like a quick, Oh my God, I accidentally, touched your genitals type grab. It was like the hand lingered for a solid second or two. And it was clearly a deliberate grab. Um, so when I finally kind of snapped out of this slow moment in time, he kind of picked up that I was feeling uncomfortable and said it was unintentional, this kind of stuff. I spent the entire drive back to New York sort of replaying every good thing he'd ever done for me and sort of, by the time I got back to um, Niagara Falls, I thought that I was the sick and twisted person forever thinking that this father figure would, you know, want to harm me in any way. Um, so that kind of passed. The summer went and I was ready to take this job at his church. And he flew up to New Hampshire to uh, meet my mom um, and my two sisters and take us out for dinner. And we went to this Brazilian steakhouse and you know, and I remember my mom telling me later that there was something just weird about him that she just didn't feel good about. Just his entire demeanor with me and all this kind of stuff. But 
hindsight's always twenty twenty, and it's not my mom's responsibility anyway at that point. So um, that night, you know, he's going back to his hotel and he gives me this whole, hey, you know, like you're just sleeping on your mom's pullout. Why don't you just come stay at the hotel? There's plenty of room. And, you know, again, uh, this was a kind of, well, I don't really feel comfortable with this. And at this point, you know, I'd known him for years and he knew exactly what to say to me to make me feel as though this was just my broken heart or my broken soul or whatever. And so that night while I was asleep, I felt something touched the back of my head and I kind of napped awake and there this guy is, you know, like spooning behind me and rubbing his hands through my hair and making this really just disgusting moaning sound. Right. Um, so I freeze up and I think one of the hardest things is uh, you go back and I guess I'll get into this later, but you go back and replay these moments in your head over and over and over. You're like, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why didn't you do this? But I, I just lay there. I was just like paralyzed in it. Um, and all I could kind of do was close my eyes and wait for it all to stop. And so it did. Um, eventually, so I, I'll kind of skip some of the details that uh, you can kind of read through the article, I guess. Um, but I ended up driving down with him and getting really sick, like mysteriously ill all of a sudden where I was in the hospital for three days and like the ER doc was like, you know, you must have been given something or, you know, um, they were very weirded out by what happened to me and ordered a bunch of tests. And uh, so I was kind of in the hospital with this guy and realized that I'm terrified of this dude. I don't want to be anywhere near him. And when I got home, I, oh, not home, when I got to Virginia where his church was uh, and read the job description of the job I got and it was sort of like, weird indentured servitude, things like learn to speak with a voice and heart of the pastor and stuff like that. I, I was like, nah, I'm not doing this. So um, I went home soon after that, you know, the car gift was taken back and we kind of just went our separate ways. But so I spent like these years kind of saying, well, you know, this guy had a lot of opportunities to like really try, uh, you know, I went, my head went to this weird space where it was sexual assault, but not really sexual assault, you know, this kind of weird headspace. Um, so years later I reached out to him and apologized for getting things twisted. This is, I guess the most messed up part of it for me is I'd convinced myself that I made this up, that this was kind of all in my head. Yet, yes, they'd happened that, um, the things happened, but there had to have been an explanation for this that wasn't what I thought, what I had asserted it was. Um, because I didn't even accuse him of sexually assaulting me. Like I sent him after I went home, I sent him an email basically saying, Hey, here's exactly why I left. Cause I told him I left because of my health, but I sent him an email and I was like, Hey, you know, I left because you made me feel really uncomfortable with these circumstances doing these things. And the answer I got was like uh, this long sort of, really aggressive, abusive thing. Uh, you know, since I've known you, you've run for any, from anyone or anything that could offer you any closeness or intimacy. And you can think what you want, but I'll, you know, live and die knowing I've, all I ever wanted you to do is be a part of my family. And I've, uh, I was like a father to you and all this kind of stuff. So after years of this, I, you know, uh, of being away and thinking about it and um, spending a lot of my time overseas in a really self-destructive way, I blame myself for it. And I was like, this is a good relationship. Um, my relationship with my biological father hadn't gotten much better at the time. Um, so I reached out to him, apologized to him. And for him, it was like the prodigal son story in the Bible. He said he's been praying for this day to come, you know, that God was so good and all this kind of stuff. So here I am apologizing to my abuser 
for telling him he made me feel uncomfortable and him feeling like it's all part of a larger cosmic plan. So we weren't, weren't really close, super close after that, but we did talk. And um, fast forward up to about a year and a half, two years ago, I came out publicly um, as, as a bisexual on my social media pages. And when he found out, he reached out and claimed that, you know, he'd always suspected, but didn't want to, you know, make me feel uncomfortable. Then told me that he was also bisexual. And here's a big thing. Normally, I would never out someone's sexuality in public. You know, it's vindictive, could have serious ramifications for, for them and their families and all that kind of stuff. I'm very sensitive to that. But the detail is really important to the reality behind what happened next. So he begins to text me these stories Hey, I'm up in uh, um, this part of West Virginia right now. I'm with this young man. He tastes really good. Um, so he's texting me stories of hookups he's having with like 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds. He's in his 50s and um, a minister and married with children. And he's sending explicit stories about hooking up with these people that were my age at the time of the abuse, Right. So he'd go into really graphic details. He'd talk about his partner's bodies and stuff that, I mean, it was just, it was disgusting to me. Not because, you know, um, I think there's anything wrong with, you know, same-sex activity, but all things considered, it was really, it was really disturbing. Uh, so here's this guy who, you know, claimed over and over to be this father figure to me without any conditions attached is now sending me, essentially sexting me. Now, this only happened over like a period of a week to get to the point where it ended, um, he sent the last exchange was he sent me pictures of his own genitals. Uh, I told him that this was completely unacceptable. I didn't want this. And if we were going to keep talking, this never, ever, this would need to stop. Um, so then he sends me photos of his, uh, naked, but well, he sent me photos of him having sex with a younger man. Um, so I blocked him on pretty much everything. Uh, unfriended him on social media. We haven't spoken since. Um, I did save, you know, the messages and images and things. I have them in a locked folder. Um, not to distribute them, obviously. That's illegal. I would never do that kind of thing. But um, even though the article does protect his family and things, some people could, who knew us both at the time, could put two and two together. And if you ever wanted to come after me, I, you know, I have it all. This is, you know, I want to make sure it's very clear what happened here. So, um, to kind of cap it all off, it's pretty obvious what was happening, um, and how manipulative the whole situation was. And what's funny is until that happened, I'd sort of forgotten things he would say to me early on. And I don't even mean when, after like he'd bought me a car and clothes and things, I mean, early on and he would make sexual jokes or talk about, you know, um, how great it is to get a full body naked massage from someone you trust oh. or speculating. Sorry. Out. Yeah, no, it's okay. I'm just feeling you, dude. I'm so sorry. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's okay. Um, he'd speculate like out loud about how big he thought my cock was, stuff like that. It's just, um, and, but because he made me feel valued and important and, uh, you know, spent thousands of dollars on me, I either wasn't able to see it or had a difficult difficult time reconciling with it. Um, so yeah, and I was sort of inspired to write this by this church two thread, uh, which is kind of all over Twitter on it's people's stories of systemic abuse in the church, uh, by people in power and really helped me come to, to the, to grips with the fact that, you know, I, and probably 
you know, thousands and thousands of others have a very, very difficult time seeing the church, God, or Christians the same way because of, of the situation. Um, so that's kind of my story. I guess it's my abuse story or whatever. I'm not really sure how to title these. And I'm sorry if I give laughs. I'm not trying to I'm trying to give levity to uh, or brevity to any of this. Um, it's just sort of like kind of a weird defense mechanism. I'm not really sure how to talk about it without yeah. inserting an artificial laugh in. So Sometimes things are so awful that you're just like, I mean, I say this as someone who has worked in the hospital and dealt with death and dying and some awful situations. Sometimes you kind of have to laugh just to release that energy a little bit, I, mm-hmm. I feel like. There aren't any, you know, rules. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm curious, like, you know, because what one of the things that struck me about your story was how after sort of like getting away from this guy and having some space from him, you chose to reach out to him again mm-hmm. and apologize. And mm-hmm. and almost like, I mean, I, I, I'm wondering, like, how does that, uh, that narrative that certainly I learned in the church and that I think exists in a lot of spiritual traditions and communities that um, around reconciliation and sort of like wanting to like not break relationship with people. Do you think that played a role in your decision to reach back out to him and ap- apologize to him, even though he was the one who had abused you? You know, um, I don't really know. I know that for me that it was mostly just self-doubt. In terms of like reconciliation and things, I found, and I have found, and of course, you know, I'm obviously still in therapy for this, but uh, um, in my story, I kind of, I've spent countless hours sort of replaying moments in my head, not focusing on Mark, but focusing on myself, mm-hmm. what I did, what I think I do now, what I thought at the time, what I think now, what I didn't think of then what people told me, where I was. Oh, there are so many variables that I spent years just harping on constantly. And you sort of become an enemy in your own store and you build this caricature of yourself as weak, stupid, naive, glossy-eyed, whatever. Mm-hmm. And even though that's not the reality, it's the abuse, but it is real to you. It was real to me. So this kind of mythical character of myself in here is this week, all these kind of things. That was the hardest thing to sort of reconcile and forgive. It wasn't, it has very little to do now with my abuser. He can go to hell. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. spend much time thinking about him, but there, I think there's a second element because on one hand you, you say things like I need to forgive myself. And it's sort of a dysfunctional way to talk because in this scenario, you know, I didn't, and abuse victims, they don't ever deserve the abuse they get. Right. Uh, they haven't ever, haven't ever done anything to deserve it, or it's not a cause and effect thing. So saying it out loud, like I need to forgive myself, it seems to imply that there is, but I only say it that way because we build these weak caricatures or wrong caricatures of ourselves in our mind. And even though they're not real, they do become real to us. So we sort of need to engage with them and forgive them. And that's been the hardest thing for me is facing up to this self of mine from about a decade ago and finding a way to like understand that I can't change what happened with me or how I see that stuff, but I have to find a way to sort of forgive and move on. Now, in terms of my abuser, um, 
you know, I've never gotten an apology from him. Yeah. I never will. Right. Um, and if I do, I mean, now, now the story is public, so it won't mean much to me. This is something that I feel pretty strongly right now with all these apologies. Uh, I, I doubt the authenticity of apologies that happen after exposure. Yeah. So in terms of what like made me come back and, t- and t- like, I think it was mostly just self-hate, really. Mm. Um, I never understood really why people return to bad situations for themselves. Uh, I get it now. And obviously not all situations are the same or applicable or comparable. But for me, this was clearly a situation to anybody on the outside that was abusive. And I had tons of people come out of the woodwork or out of my life or in different areas who I didn't even know that well to warn me about this guy. Tons of people. Mm -hmm. But you didn't listen to them. No, I didn't. I didn't. And again, that's another hard thing to to sort of engage with and reconcile is that, you know, you want to just tell yourself you should have known better, which isn't really helpful, you know, um, but it's how I felt for years. So um, with him going back and apologizing, uh, I don't, I can't tell. I don't know if I was trying to just, you know, force a situation to be reconciled and be better for me. Um, and this is one thing I'll never understand about this guy. As long as I live, I'll never understand it. I basically gave him an out. Mm-hmm. You know, coming to him and apologizing, this was an opportunity for him to be able to bury the hatchet on something that, you know, especially in his position, you'd probably want to go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'll never understand why he thought, hey, now what I'm going to do is send him unwanted nude pictures and sexually explicit images of me with people that were his age at the time. It sounds like maybe he kind of got off on seeing how much power he had over you. Like, how much are you willing to accept from him and, like, internalize it all and blame it on yourself and just, like, kind of take it, you know? Yeah, and and he did have this kind of personality. And it's – I don't want to just generalize a group of people, but it's a personality I have seen with a lot of uh, Pentecostal ministers – Obviously, there's no equation with what he did in that job or that role. But there is a sort of, I define the parameters of my world all the time. The buck stops with me and I have this calling or I have this ability and I can do this. And if I do it, it's okay. And I've observed that behavior a lot. And I mean, with him in spades. And there, there was always this sort of like brinksmanship. How far can I push things like, he would say weird stuff like, you know, just a small thing. I'm from New England and, you know, grew up a Boston Red Sox fan like everybody else is forced to when they're from New England. And, uh, um, you know, he would say things like, I bet you if I would a- if I asked you to or if, uh, if, I, if it was important to me, you'd wear Yankees gear. Like, weird stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That, like, you don't ever at the time it's happening stop and think, wow, this is kind of weird. You just sort of dismiss it. But, yeah, there was a lot of that with him. Hmm. You're saying that you, you think his the idea that he could have power over you was like erotic to him. I I have no idea. I'm <laughs> I, I'm not much for uh, the study of psychology. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't done much. It's not really Sorry, my I didn't field. Mean to imply. No, it's yeah, okay. Yeah. No, it's okay. But it just sounds like you're you're saying like why would you why would you say something like yeah, that? Exactly. Like, oh, I bet I could get you to do stuff. Like right, right. I mean, I'll never know. I mean, literally, this is something that for anybody, as we've seen with sort of this wave of stories that have come forward, it doesn't matter what field you're in, uh, this could destroy your career and it should. Right. But mm-hmm. you would think that that guy was kind of out of the woods with me. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, 
I don't I don't even know if I would have made the final turn and got into some serious therapy over the last couple of years or whatever and tell my story if we hadn't if I hadn't come back to him and apologize and then led to a new kind of line of dialogue that led to the explicit images. I don't know if that would have happened. Um, mm-hmm. So in a way, he sort of like didn't push me into coming forward, I guess. But I don't think we were having this conversation today if he never sends me that stuff, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah. Wow. I kind of just wanted this to go away. Go away. Yeah. He revealed the true extent of his sort of sickness and predatory behavior. Right. Right. Because there, there it was in, in print and in images. Like his emails before that were maintaining this, I've only ever tried to be a father figure type narrative. Fathers don't send pictures like this to their sons. Mm-hmm. So again, a decade had passed by this point. So I wasn't a ragingly insecure 21, 22 year old anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I accumulated a couple degrees. I lived abroad. You know, I've been in the world a little bit. So I wasn't quite as <laughs> easily manipulated. And e- even so, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't want to keep harping on about it, but I'll never understand what motivated him to do that. Mm-hmm. Having had that experience as a man of being victimized in that way that I think a lot of men are um, and maybe a lot don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of probably not nearly as many men as women have had experiences right. like that. How do you sort of relate to some of the stuff that's swirling around in this Me Too and Church Too moment where men like the man who abused you are sort of losing their power and losing their jobs? And, and when you see these responses, I, I, Rebecca Traster, who writes in a New York magazine, I think put it so well a few weeks ago. She was like, when a powerful white man loses his job, it's a death. Like, that's how people respond yeah. to it. It's like, we're not, like, casting them to the ocean or sending them to electric chair. Right. I think about the black men who are serving life sentences in prison because mm-hmm. they had, like, a minor drug offense or something. Like, these are people whose lives have been ruined. Like, right. a man losing his job or, like, Louis C.K. losing his development deals and, like, distribution deals and stuff. Like, that's not they're not going to die. They still have piles of money to go home and sit on. They're losing one layer of privilege. Right, it's like a right, tragedy. Right. You know? and, and they're getting payouts. Bill O'Reilly has millions of dollars in payouts. Uh, Matt Lauer is probably going to get 30 plus million. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's not, that hasn't been finalized, but it's apparently what he's seeking according to a report today. Um, so there's a couple things. I mean, I think the Church 2 campaign is unique in the sense that I have to give Relevant Magazine a shout out here and um, because they didn't try to push a men too type arc on this, yeah, which I was really sensitive about and I didn't want to happen um, because every time, you know, whether it be women or people of color are able to sort of finally be given the space to tell their stories, there's always a white guy ready to tell his that's bigger, badder, and better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I-, I was really sort of happy that there was no effort to do that. And I think in church particularly, it's maybe one of the few institutions of power that I've noticed that men seem to also be just as affected. I mean, I think about the spotlight story in the Boston Globe in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, in terms of that, I think that men sometimes are a little, and myself included, are a little bit dramatic about the opportunities that we don't have to share. Yeah. I, I haven't been emasculated by anybody. For coming forward. 
about this, which is not to say that it's not difficult, but we have space to do this because ultimately, I mean, I'm a, a known atheist and two districts of the assemblies of God have indirectly reached out to me to chat about escalating this. And this individual is not even an Assemblies of God minister anymore. I'm being taken pr- very seriously. Now, some of it might be because of where I work. Some things might be because, you know, other factors, fair enough. But I can't help but think that a part of me or a part of, of this whole thing is because of my sort of position of privilege. It's kind of weird to say that, you know, as a, as a sexual assault victim, I still sit in a position of privilege. But I, I do think that's true to a certain mm-hmm. extent. So I don't know. In watching all these kind of other dominoes fall, I think the biggest sort of myth that's being perpetuated, and I've seen it uh, be perpetuated by progressives as well, this implication that the talent pool is really shallow. And so that there are some, we're really losing like a generation of great journalists. Mm-hmm. And I think any talk of redemption without sort of substantial long-term justice is systemic complicit behavior. And you pointed it out really aptly a second ago that forgiveness isn't, you know, absolution of what happened. No one's talking about raiding these people's bank accounts. Right. You know, or, uh, you know, kicking them out of their homes or, but women and even in the industry I'm in, you know, sometimes come forward and are ostracized from the entire industry. If anybody wants to watch, a depressing but I think important development. They should follow Kelly Ellis on Twitter. Mm-hmm. She's a software engineer, was at Google for about four or five years, was sexually harassed at an offsite. This has been well publicized and she wrote about it. And everything she tweets has about, you know, 70 to 80 men coming at her, calling her retarded, threatening to rape her, all sorts of just really nasty, ugly things. And her block list is too long to even follow and her escalations to Twitter don't even don't seem to bear much, much weight or water. Um, and it's different when you're, when you're a guy, mm-hmm. it really is. So as much as yes, absolutely. I don't, I don't mean to minimize that it's difficult to tell our story as men, that there are different cultural uh, norms and expectations placed upon our roles and this idea of masculinity and all sorts of stuff. That that's real. Mm-hmm. I don't think because I've been sexually assaulted by another man, I can I can instantly relate now that I have some sort of kinship to women in this position. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I escalated this, um, I didn't. This didn't make the article partly because Relevant usually publishes articles that are fifteen hundred words, and mine was well over two thousand. So they. Um, already made some concessions for me, but I escalated this to the director of internships at Southeastern university where I went to school, uh, at the time, this gentleman, I think was as genuine as he could be. I told him what happened. He said he believed me, but then he said, you know, Gabe, I hate to use a metaphor about this because I asked him what I should do. And he said, you know, sometimes an Eagle will swoop down towards a lake and he'll pick up a fish And sometimes he'll ensnare a fish that's too large for him to fly off with. But he caught the fish. He wants to hold the fish. 
So what he does instead is he gets weighed down into the water and drowns, and the fish drowns him. I'm afraid that if you escalate this, this will drown you. That's Oof. what he said to me. Now, you know, uh, to take that from that, uh, it's certainly awful advice, and I wonder if you'd give it <laughs> in hindsight. But um, what what he didn't do was imply that I might, you know, have some sort of mental illness. Mm-hmm. He didn't, you know, imply that I was hysterical. He He believed me right away. There was no long character study to find instances of promiscuity in my own life. There wasn't any attempt or effort to discredit me. Mm-hmm. I can't say the same for women who come forward with allegations of sexual uh, assault and harassment. So again, it's just, it's it's not an equal experience. Not that you know we should try to compare these experiences because I don't think that's helpful either. But what I never want to do, and what I hope men don't do, and is now think that we have this thing in common. This is the larger systemic problem is our shared struggle because it's not really. Mm-hmm. You know, I really appreciate you saying that. Well, I just I just don't think it's it's genuine to yeah. pretend that what happens to me here. I mean, again, like and I'm not trying to diminish or imply that there are varying levels of sexual assault. But again, like he had no ability to overpower me. Mm-hmm. If he had tried to physically overpower me, I'm pretty sure I would have broken every tooth in his mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, he obviously was manipulating things and things like that. And it was a traumatic experience. But like. The stories that I hear from people that have shared to me on my writer's page about this, um, the ones from women have been just horrific. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, again, I don't think it's useful, like, comparing, like, here, let's compare our abuse stories. Who's wor- Whose is worse? But I think that I would prefer us as men to tell our stories and all the avenues we're given as opposed to looking at something like Me Too and feeling as though – it's it's kind of an exclusive campaign. Well, they should include everybody. You know, when a study group is studying how to cure a particular disease, maybe it's a certain type of t- type of cancer, uh, sufferers of a different type of illness don't barge in and say, "What are you guys doing?" You know, <laughs> yeah. work at, well, There's other illnesses out there too. You should work to solve everything. I think we can all kind of recognize that for women, especially if they're in positions where su- or a man who has a position of power over them that interferes with or has this kind of power over how they earn their living, how their careers advance, their physical safety. I mean, the the kind of revealed fact that Matt Lauer had this lock on his door Mm -hmm. that he could trigger from his desk. It's just, that's an unimaginable horror that I can't really relate to in my story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not really sure why there are some men that feel like we need to be included in, in everything in order for any conversation to be legitimate. Um, no, I mean, I, I appreciate so much everything you're saying. Basically, I feel like this, the story that you tell helps educate people as to the fact that there's a pattern to these things a lot of times mm-hmm. and that the experience of, you know, being groomed and being exploited or abused in this way – that um, occurs the same way with men and women. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a real blessing that could, in a in a way, like validate the women's stories. And but I appreciate what you're saying so much that like your story hasn't been received with the same amount of like vitriol and doubt that the women's stories have been. I have not gotten a single message. 
from a Christian, from a uh, from an Assemblies of God person, from a school official, nothing that has called into question the accuracy of my story. And again, I'm wow. a well-known atheist. Uh, Pentecostal Christians aren't. I wouldn't say I'm a well-known atheist, but I'm known to be an atheist. Um, so Pentecostal <laughs> I'm Christians. I'm a very famous atheist. Yeah, I'm a very famous. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, but but the point is, like, if you run a Google search on me, is the point that you'll know right away what I'm about, what I'm not interested mm-hmm. in, all that kind of stuff. So there's a built-in excuse for Pentecostals right away to say, oh, mm-hmm. this guy, you know, he hates the church, he hates God, and all this kind of stuff. I right. haven't gotten any of that. I, I guarantee if I was a, a female worship team member, because I've seen this happen in my life, who who's comes forward with an allegation, they instantly they're going to try to vet out the person instead of looking for the truth in the, in the situation. Um, and I'm not not necessarily talking about the sons of God, but I'm I'm I've absolutely seen this before. And um, yeah, that's why you know I just don't think it's uh, I don't think it's the same thing we're talking about. We're you know the stories of women coming forward aren't just talking about their own stories, but a larger hugely systemic issue of power repression and abuse that happens in a distinct way to in unique way to women in these contexts um Hmm. that doesn't mean bad things don't happen to men they do they're horrific they need to be addressed but i think we have the space to do that i think they're just it's our responsibility as men to encourage them to continue to come forward and encourage them that, that you know they're not effeminate for having been you know sexually assaulting or or whatever the so-called stigma might be but i don't think we need to invade spaces that uh, highlight specific systemic issues in order to do that if you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism check out listentotherising.com and even better subscribe to us on itunes you can also follow us on facebook and instagram see you next time on the rising Thank you.